Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, welcome back into the Nick Ba podcast. And I got a solo venture dialed up for you today. I got... One, I guess you could call it take. Really, they're all takes, but it's it's one take for you. And then I I post four questions to myself, and uh, and and we get into a bunch of different things: the Elam ending, some Creighton basketball stuff, uh, some more Nebraska football things. Uh, but it's gonna be me. It's gonna be you. So sit back and let's dive into it. Here we go. Uh, the the first the first thing I wanted to address. There, there was the big news of this past week around uh, Nebraska, the, the Nebraska football world that ruffled some feathers and made waves around here locally, and that was the new revamped media access structure for the Husker football season. Uh, it's basically no more position coaches talking to the media. Once the season gets rolling, it is going to be Scott Frost and then the offensive and defensive coordinator. They're going to be made available to the media. And that's it. So no more talking to the tight ends coach, the O-line coach, wide receiver coach, linebackers coach, yada, yada, yada. No more. It's going to be that that more one voice thing that, to be honest, I think is uh, that most college football programs use. Um, and this has made some people upset. You know, it was, it was a big topic of conversation. And what's hard is, you know, I don't want to paint with a broad brush, so it's it's kind of hard to quantify where everyone has landed on this. You know, it's hard to sit there and be like, everybody was upset or nobody was upset. It's kind of, you know, Twitter sometimes can be hard to totally gauge with, with that or sports talk radio or whatever. But it was something that that dominated uh, Husker football Twitter for a few days, dominated some sports talk radio shows for a few days. And so I kind of wanted to weigh in on on this whole thing. It's always fascinating to watch the reactions to something like this. couple of broad things. How, number one, how you feel about this, this new media structure and, and you know, no more assistant coach, position coaches being made available to the media. And now it's, it's, it's one, it's going to be Frost and the coordinators and all that. How you feel about this probably is a direct reflection of how you currently feel about Scott Frost and the program. If you don't like Scott Frost, you don't believe in the program right now, then you hate this move and you bash it and you criticize it. You like Scott Frost, you believe in the program, you're you're going to defend it, you're cool with it. Let's just let's just let's just not BS each other. Let's just be honest about that and keep it real with each other. Listening to reactions was pretty much easy to kind of predict. Like if someone skews towards being anti-Frost, they ripped it. If someone was was maybe someone that is kind of pro frost, they defended it. It was it was easy. It was super easy to predict who would land in what category. That goes for some of the fans too. Like you get a sense of where certain fans kind of land and others where they land and they they went right to their their corners. And number 2 to kind of build off that point. 
these things, these kinds of topics, these kinds of, I mean, I, I struggle to put it like a, a controversy or, or these kinds of issues or whatever. These, these things only matter in a negative way for people because Nebraska isn't winning. Little things become big things when you're losing. If Nebraska was coming off three straight nine or ten win seasons and two West Division titles and Scott Frost and the the, the football program announced this, hey, no more position coaches, only going to be the coordinators and the head coach. If they were coming off three straight nine win seasons, couple division titles or something like that, the reaction would be completely different. But when you're losing, everything gets filtered through that lens. Everything lands a little bit different. Again, Bo Pelini's fiery personality was fine until they started getting blown out and losing. And you know, Tim Miles tweeting at halftime was unique and fun until they started losing and finishing last in the Big Ten. I just think when it comes to sports, how something lands is oftentimes a product of whether or not you're winning and how you're performing. Draymond Green podcasting during the NBA playoffs wasn't really an issue until he started struggling and Golden State lost game one of the NBA finals. Then it was an issue. I think the vast majority of the time, like 99% of the time, 99% of these position coach interviews are fine and they reflect really, really good on the program and on the coach and everything. Like, interview with the wide receivers coach, interview with the O-line coach. Or not, the lion's share of the time, 95, 98, 99% of the time, it reflects well on the program. But I can also, I feel like I can acknowledge that, but, but I can also kind of understand the decision for Frost and the program to, to do this. I get it. I can get how maybe Trev and Frost and you know, Keith Mann and and everybody you know Matt Davison, a bunch of different people are sitting down and, and talking about how they're going to handle media access, media structure this season. And someone goes, you know what, guys? Let's. What if you know Frost is kind of he he's we're moving him to more of this CEO role. We got a bunch of new coaches. What what if we just say, all right, coordinators, Frost, that's it. Let, right, let's just do that. Make it clean, one voice, all that stuff. Like, I get it. I actually think this is kind of more on par with what the rest of college football does in terms of its its media access and media availability for their football program. I think the only people in all of this who are actually impacted by this are the daily beat writers who are in the trenches and have to crank out a story almost every day on Nebraska football. Like, those are the only people I feel like probably got this news and thought, ah, crap, it's going to be a little harder to maybe crank out a, a story every day. Everybody else, like, let's be honest. I, I maybe suppose on some level it may impact your, I mean, I struggle to even say this. Like, I, I suppose on some level it may impact your enjoyment as a fan because you don't get to hear from assistants. But at the same time, give me a break. Give me a break. Your enjoyment as a fan hinges on winning, not quotes from the tight ends coach. Again, let's not be disingenuous with this thing. Don't Let's not bullshit each other on this stuff. 
you don't actually care if you hear from Brian Applewhite this season. You don't. You can sit there and be like, yeah, I do. No, you don't. You don't. Stop pretending like you do for some weird point to make. Or stop pretending like you do because you don't like Frost and you don't believe in the program. Again, a lot of this comes back to how you feel about the program, how you feel about Scott Frost, and the fact that Nebraska isn't winning. And listen, what I'm saying right now might be upsetting to some people. Like it might, some people may be listening to this and getting a little uncomfortable. But I think the reason it's upsetting you is because deep down inside, you know I'm right. This story isn't a big deal. In fact, I even debated discussing it on my podcast, but I got a couple of emails about it, got a couple of tweets about it. I saw it was really taken off on Twitter and on Sports Talk Radio, and I just I heard so so many takes. I was like, all right, I'll weigh it. I mean, what are we really talking about here, people? What are we talking about? I want to hear from the D-line coach. Really, I mean, do you? You're going to hear from the defensive coordinator. You're going to hear from Scott Frost. It's not like you're not going to hear anything from anybody ever. It's not that. I, I I can understand the decision from Frost and Trev on on this. I can't. Now, again, I would have been fine if they kept it the way it was because, like I said, I think the vast majority of the time these interviews are fine. But making it so Scott Frost and the coordinators are the only ones that are going to be talking to the media once the season gets going, I, I think that's fine too. I, and I get it. Again, Nebraska, I think Nebraska gives the fan base plenty of access. And Nebraska is unique in this regard in that it's, you know, with it being the only show in the state. Nebraska football is everything around here. Y'all know that. There's an enormous media following. There's an enormous, super passionate fan base. And I can understand how you just, you know, I think sometimes just keeping it, you know, keeping something clean and simple and, and avoiding any potential issue is smart. And I think just having it be mainly Frost, who is the main voice, is is smart, it's simple, and it's clean. Again, he's gravitating to that new CEO role, and this kind of fits into that. And I think it's fine, and I get it. Again, 99% of the time, these position coach interviews are fine, but I just think having Frost be the main voice makes sense. It's how Saban does it. It's how Kirk Ferentz does it. I get it. I just think this isn't a big deal. You know, and as I'm even like typing out this take and and talking about it here, as I've turned the mic on, I feel silly that I've spent this much this much time on it. It's not a big deal, you know. It won't impact anyone's life other than the beat writers, I suppose. It's just kind of your classic July story that gets blown up because we are starving for football season, and there's nothing going on. And and it's kind of what I've been saying. It's it's the classic story where if you already don't like or believe in Frost, this gives you a chance to criticize. I mean, I, I, I'll i be honest with you. Like, I remember being a little like that when I was on the air doing daily talk radio on 1620, doing my, my solo show and even with Chick and Nick way back in the day. Like, towards the end of the Polini era and almost all of Mike Riley, I'll be honest, I was so I was just so out on both those guys I was never on board with the Riley hire towards the end of Polini. Things had just gotten so toxic, and and there were just things that you were seeing that you just felt like, man, this program's not growing at all. Like, 
I remember being on the air and being so out on both those guys that basically everything that came from the program, I was kind of negative about. And this is where, and it's even kind of, I think, gotten even more, it's it's really sports, media, and others has gone more in this direction where it's become almost political in the sense of you pick your side and no matter what, you stick with that side and you go negative on the other side. I am okay, LeBron James, you you pro or you anti? You're anti? Okay. No matter what, you stay anti. Right? Like th- that's how these things kind of work now. This this situation strikes me as a little bit of that to a certain degree. The reality is the only people who are impacted by this at all are probably the Daily Beat writers who are in the trenches and have to write and churn out stories on a seemingly daily basis. Other than that, this really isn't a big deal. We're still going to get plenty of access from the rest football. It's all good. It is all good. Okay, I can't help but feel like I've wasted time there even talking about that. But just so many people are talking about it, felt like I had to weigh in. The Nick Bob Podcast is brought to you by Pella Windows and Doors. And I want to talk to you guys about energy efficiency. And if you go into Pella's website right now, you look at it. And how about this? One, two, three, four, five different types of windows or doors by Pella. Won the Energy Star 2020 Most Energy Efficient Award. That's big time stuff right there. And they achieved that in a couple of waves. They got insulated glass, which slows the heat transfer, keeping your home at a more comfortable temperature. They got types of low-E glass, which is a glass coating that has been optimized for your climate. They got triple-pane glass, which you can upgrade to for increased insulating airspace. And within all of that, one of the keys is proper installation, which is key for window and doors to perform at their best. And you know the Pella experts are excellent at that bottom line energy efficiency matters in making your home more comfortable and Pella windows and doors are at the top of the line when it comes to energy efficiency check them out online PellaOmaha.com that's PellaOmaha.com next next thing I wanted to get into okay you, you saw the Pat Narduzzi quotes that were quite the doozy on Mark Whipple uh so what's my take okay so for for people that that don't know Pat Narduzzi was on a podcast who is the uh, obviously the pit head coach, and he had some quotes about his former offensive coordinator, Mark Whipple, who's obviously now at Nebraska, that these these quotes surfaced and raised some eyebrows amongst uh, a lot of people. But once you do like 30 seconds of research, you realize that just so much of what Narduzzi was saying was just like insane and factually incorrect. So this was this was the quote. Pat Narduzzi said of Mark Whipple, quote, Our old offensive coordinator had no desire to run the ball. Everyone knew it. He was stubborn. Wake Forest was 118th in run defense, and we threw the ball every down. When we ran it, we ran it for like 10 yards, but that wasn't good enough. That's from Pat Narduzzi. And that quote got shared a bunch when it hit the Twitter world. But again, once you dug into it, even like a little bit, you realize how silly it really was. To the point where you kind of dismiss the whole entire thing. Because when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's kind of, whoa, huh. But then you you do, you do just you do like a shred of research. And when the facts are just so wildly inaccurate, it renders the entire point almost irrelevant, right? So in that Wake Forest game that he's talking about, Pitt won the game. It was the ACC championship game. Pitt won the game. 
uh, 45 to 21. Pitt ran the ball 38 times and threw it 34 times. Pitt averaged 2.8 yards per rush, which was not 10 yards a carry. So, like, just wildly inaccurate. And then even Sam McEwen did a really good deep dive on on this, um, where you should go check it out at Omaha.com. But he 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 pointed out where actually he, he writes actually including sets sacks pit through the ball 56% of the time in 2021 running the ball 44% of the time the panthers had three backs carry the ball more than 100 times nebraska had one so there you go so to me pat narduzzi comes off poorly here and when you are just spewing wildly inaccurate things to rip on someone else it's just a bad look comes off as you're emotional, you got an axe to grind, it's personal. But, so I think you just take like the story and just throw it in the trash because it's silly. But I, but this quote and this, this, everything with it kind of got me thinking. I do agree with the notion that Mark Whipple d- likes to throw the ball. It's it's not like he's Mike Leach air raid and going to throw it 60 times a game, but I think he's a guy that likes to throw the ball. And then within that, I think fans are, are you know, because I was thinking about the stylistic argument and discussion. And then within that, I, I think fans are officially at a point where you kind of go, okay, what do you want to see? What do you want to see from, from Nebraska football offensively? I think fans are officially at a point where they just want to see wins and don't fully care about maybe exactly how it looks. That's not to say we all don't have the brand of football we prefer. I personally enjoy watching Wisconsin style of football the most. I've said that a bunch. Like I love a great running game that controls the clock, pounds the ball on the ground, then runs play action. Like, that's the football I grew up on. That's the football I played in high school. So I gravitate and and prefer that brand of football. But to me, after five straight losing seasons and no conference titles since 1999, I think the brand of Husker football that fans prefer is the winning brand. Maybe at one point over the last 20-plus years, maybe at one point Nebraska fans could kind of be football snobs as it pertained to style and the way you win and the way you go about doing it. Maybe in 2005 or in 2011, in that time, like Nebraska fans could play that card. and like, It's not just the win I want on Saturdays. I want it to look a certain way. Like... Maybe in 2000, like Callahan's first years here, like maybe you could kind of play that card. Breast 2022. 1999 was a long time ago since a conference title. Five straight losing seasons. I just don't think fans, I don't, I, I don't know if fans can be that way anymore. And I don't think they fully are. And for me, I think you can separate the brand of football you prefer with the reality of, as a Husker fan, you just want to see winning football, whatever that looks like. If that's three yards in a cloud of dust, 
huddle up, do it again, run it 50 times, great. If you got to throw it a little bit more and maybe be 55, 45, 60, 40 pass run to win, okay, cool. As long as it's well executed, clean, and results in wins, I think fans are good with it. I think when we talk about, you know, what it looks like when discussing how we all assess a team or the season or a program with Nebraska, like I think that more pertains to how clean it looks, how well it's executed, and and not as much about whether or not they 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 run the ball, right? Like I think it's more about how well it's executed, how clean it looks, and whether or not they win. Like I think it's more about that than just just run the damn ball. Get where's the fullback? Get the fullback back there and run the ball. Now maybe I'm wrong on that, but that's kind of where I'm at with it, and where I think most fans are at with it. Everyone has their football, their brand of football they prefer, and everyone has the the type of football they think should be run at Nebraska and gives the program the best chance to win. But to me, those two things can be real, and yet at the same time, everyone also just wants to win too. I do believe, I think most Husker fans want to see Nebraska be like Wisconsin and Iowa stylistically and run the ball and control the clock. I think the majority of people, like if you could just, if you could, have, you know, in a perfect world, what style would it be? That's what they would say. But you can want that and also say, but most of all, I just want to see Nebraska play clean football, execute, and win. So even though Mark Whipple might be more pass prone, now who knows what it'll look like when he gets in the Big Ten and with this group. I mean, he did have Kenny Pickett, best quarterback in the country last year. Heisman candidate, like, and had a really good had, – had the Belichnikoff winner at receiver, like, aired it out, not a horrible idea. So, we'll, But we'll see what it ends up looking like when he gets to when, – when he's actually, you know, coordinating an offense and calling plays in Lincoln. But I do think Whipple's a, maybe a little bit more pass-prone overall in a broad sense. And that might not be everyone in Husker Nation's first choice when it comes to the brand of football they prefer. But I do think Husker fans also know what good football looks like. And that doesn't necessarily have to be eye formation, put a fullback out there, under center, two tight ends, run it, run it, run it, run it. As long as it's clean and produces wins, that's what matters. Or that's what should matter for people. That's just my thought on it. But I got to thinking about that, like when I read that quote and then just thought more about like, okay, stylistically, if this is more pass prone than run prone, how will that land? What do fans want for Husker football? And again, I just, I think the majority of fans just want to see winning clean football. Again, that's you can you can have the brand of football you prefer, but they just want to see clean winning football. 
Next topic I want to get into. It's about the Elam ending. I got an email. It says, Nick, watching TBT on ESPN and the Elam ending, would you be in favor of adding the Elam ending for all basketball? So for those that don't know, the Elam ending has been, has been implemented into the last couple of NBA All-Star games and has been in the TBT, the basketball tournament in ESPN, since its inception uh, a few years ago. And for those that don't know, the Elam ending is like this for, for basketball. The first dead ball under four minutes left in the game, the clock shuts off and eight points is added to the team with the lead and that then becomes the target score and whoever hits the target score first wins the game. So if the score is 80 to 77 and the first dead ball under four minutes, the target score becomes 88 and the first team to get to 88 points wins. That's the element. And listen, if you've never watched it, it definitely alters the feel and construction of the end of a basketball game. Like, every game ends on a made basket. It eliminates the the kind of long, drawn-out, intentional foul game you see where, you know, foul, free throws, then quick shot, foul, free throws. Like, it, it does away with that. It forces teams to stay aggressive where, as you see, lots of teams end up just kind of if they're, if they're sitting on a lead, they just kind of drain the clock and hold the ball and hope time runs out towards the end of, of the game, right? Like they'll hold it, hold it, drain the clock, hoist up a shot, and just kind of play not to lose instead of saying, staying aggressive. And with the Elam ending, all that stuff is gone. So there are elements of it I really like. It does make the ends of games more entertaining. Every game ends on a made shot, which makes it exciting. It does eliminate all the fouling at the end of games that just kill the flow. And, you know, I, I there is a part of me that likes how it mirrors a sport like baseball in in the way that you, you have to actually finish and close out the game. Like, football and basketball, as it is right now, you can kind of just sit on your lead and wait for the the time to run out in baseball you got to get to not you got to get to that bottom or top of the ninth and you got to get three outs you got to end it this elam ending for hoops is kind of more like that you got to close out the game stay aggressive and score which i like so again there are things that i i really like about it but if you're asking me right now, would I vote yes on implementing the Elam ending into college basketball and NBA basketball, I would vote no right now. And I would vote no for a couple of reasons. Number one, I am a traditionalist in certain ways. And this would would fit into that category because man, it would this would fundamentally change the ends of the end of a basketball game, which is significant. This would be a big, big, big change to make. And I'm just really reluctant to make a, a change of that magnitude to the game. Number two, and I hope I can articulate this right. This is probably the main reason. The second reason is I, I 
I still struggle with this whole idea of with the Elam ending for basketball. The, I struggle with this whole idea of all of a sudden the clock doesn't matter. The clock shuts off. The clock is you might as well just throw it in the trash. I struggle with that. Because it, it is just weird to have a basketball game. Let's let's use college basketball for this example, where for 36 minutes there is a clock. There is a game clock. There is a scoreboard that has a clock, a running clock. For 36 minutes, there's a clock, but then the clock just disappears, just goes away. I I struggle with that. I struggle to say that out loud. Because even imagine for football, college football quarters are 15 minutes. Imagine the clock matters for 56 minutes, and then it would just turn off and it doesn't matter. I guess for me, like, and this is maybe being too rigid or I, to me, you either have a clock for your sport or you don't. Either time matters and, and this is a timed sport and there's a clock and we're in hearing in within the parameters of the clock or, or you don't. Football and basketball have a clock. It's timed. Baseball doesn't. Like, baseball games can last seven or eight or nine hours. A baseball game can go 22 innings. Football and basketball are different in that regard. Like, imagine imagine the inverse Elam ending for baseball with this, where there is, okay, guys, for there is no clock until the eighth inning, and then when you get to the eighth inning, there's going to be 10 minutes on the clock, and that's how long the inning the inning is. You'd be like, wait, what? Huh? Wait a minute. When you get to the eighth inning, we're gonna add one run to the whoever's in the lead, and there's clock now, and you're the eighth inning is gonna last ten minutes, the ninth inning lasts ten minutes, and that's it. I just I would struggle with that. So I would vote no. I'm a traditionalist, and I don't love how all of a sudden the clock doesn't matter and goes away after 96% of the game you had a clock. So, like I said, there are elements of the Elam ending I really like. I do think they make the games, the end of games, more exciting and more entertaining. That is almost undeniable. It's almost undeniable. But... Doing doing what is most entertaining can't be your guiding light behind massive changes to a sport, in my opinion. That's how I feel about it today. Again, the Elam ending is still in its like infant stages. I really don't ever see the day where the Elam ending is like, that's how games are ended. Like all NBA games, all college basketball games. Like I'd struggle to see that ever take hold. But I think it has its place. I think it's it's cool for the tournament, the TBT on, on ESPN that's always in July here. And then I think it's cool for the NBA All-Star Game, for example. I really enjoy that. But am I am I ready to vote yes on implementing in, uh, the implementing in college basketball and NBA regular season and, play, season and playoffs? I'm not. Not quite ready to go there. Uh, next question. Uh, got an email saying, Nick, I've heard you talk about 
Creighton's starting five, but how do you see their rotation? Do you have any predictions? It's an interesting question because, yeah, I think it's pretty easy to project who the starting five is going to be. It's going to be Ryan Nemhard, Trey Alexander, uh, Baylor Shireman, Arthur Kaluma, and Ryan Kalkbrenner. I think we all know with definitive certainty that's going to be the five. That's your starting five, and God damn, that's a good starting five. Golly, that's good. So that's your five. The question is, okay, who's in your seven or eight-man rotation? Usually you want to see about – Greg McDermott's kind of ebbed and flowed between playing seven or eight guys. Let's say he's got to play eight guys. That's It's going to be an eight-man rotation. Well, I think you're going to bring two guards off the bench. I actually think it's going to be Sharif Mitchell and Francisco Farabello, the TCU transfer who's a good shooter. And he also gives a shit defensively. Like, he'll compete there. So those, I think, are your two guards off the bench. But then you do need some size. You've got to bring some size in there. This was the Keyshawn Fizel role. Where you, whether you like it or not, you need someone that can potentially spell Kalkbrenner for a little bit. And you, you need some, some girth down there. Some height. So you're either going with Frederick King at six foot ten. He is he is a freshman. You could go with Mason Miller, who is a redshirt freshman. He's got a little bit of size. He's a little bit more perimeter oriented. He's a good three point shooter. He's not necessarily going to give you a lot of banging down low. You could go with Jason Green, the freshman out of Miller North, but again, a freshman. My guess is they probably ideally want it to be Frederick King just because he's the biggest body. And with how Kalkbrenner has shown an ability to play defense without fouling, the reality is Keyshawn Fizel learned this the hard way. Like There weren't a lot of minutes for the backup five because Kalkbrenner did a hell of a job, first of all, getting into shape, staying in shape, and staying out of foul trouble. So you really only need that backup post to give you a little, you know, 10, 15 minutes a game at most. I think ideally it's a it's Fred, it's it's King. So that would be my guess is your is is that's your rotation. But I also I've heard I've heard Mason Miller shot the shit out of it. Jason Green's a talented guy, one of the coaches are really excited about. And what's crazy is I haven't even mentioned Two really good players in Roddy Andronikashvili, who was in the rotation a year ago and made you know game-altering plays. Both Marquette games, he closed both games out. Had a nice drive and finish at Marquette to seal it and stole the ball, forced a turnover on Daryl Morcel against Marquette at home to kind of seal the game. So there's Roddy, and then there's big uh, Ben Stotzelberg. The freshman from California, six foot four, who I, the coaches have given me that look like, bro, this guy is a baller. And, and then there's even John Christopoulos, who was, you know, a sharpshooter who got hurt last year. So it's it's tough. I mean, it's there's going to be some really good players who never take their warm up shirt off, sitting on the bench. Some really good players. 
So for me, I, but I would guess I'll go Nemhard, Trey Alexander, Kaluma, Shireman, and Kalkbrenner are your starters. You're bringing Sharif Mitchell and Francisco Farabello off the bench. I think the next big will be Frederick King just because he's the biggest guy. That's your eight-man rotation. And then you'll sprinkle in some, you know, I could see Roddy getting some some minutes. I could see Schatzberg, the, the freshman, getting thrown in there, see what he can do. Mason Miller can shoot it. Maybe Jason Green gets a shot at it. But those, that's how I would see the top eight. And I'll say this. I'm not willing to proclaim this right now, the best Creighton team of all time. Like, let's let's slow down a little bit. But, listen, I've been around Creighton basketball intimately, either as a player or as a coach or as a broadcaster, for every season since 2005. And to me, I can't think of a team over the past 20 to 25 years or for sure since 2005, that has a deeper roster of raw talent. Meaning, like, so Creighton, Creighton basically, they got 13 scholarship players right now. Let's call them 13. They basically have 13 scholarship players. To me, it's the best 1 through 13 of scholarship players when you consider the depth of talent. Now again, I'm not ready to say it's the best Creighton team ever. Let's, let's slow down. But man, the depth of talent when you're getting down to like players at the towards the end of the bit, like I'll be honest, there are times where there's been some Creighton teams, and Creighton's not alone in this. There's lots of teams like this where you get to maybe your tenth, your eleventh, your twelfth guy, and those guys are just okay. They're okay. Like if you throw them into a game, you're like, oh Jesus, better survive. Oh boy, we got to put him in. Oh boy. Let's just hope we survive these two minutes. To me, it's not the case with this team. Not the case. What an incredibly, incredibly deep team. God, I can't wait for Creighton basketball to start. Got a question on Twitter. I saved this. This was a while ago. This might have been a couple of months ago. That asked me, Nick, how much has Nebraska high school basketball improved in your opinion? And, you know, that is debatable maybe on some level. Like, I will say this. It is remarkable. I was actually talking about this to someone at dinner a a week and a half ago. It is pretty amazing to think back when I was in high school and and on the AAU circuit. So this would have been, you know, 2000 2000 to 2002 was when I was really playing AAU basketball, heading up into the junior before my senior year into 2003. During that time, Nebraska had basically one AAU team. The entire state of Nebraska had one AAU team. That was it. It was the Nebraska Bison runs a team. That was the main team. Now, I, I'd have to ask Mike Sauter or so. I don't even know how many AAU teams there are now in Nebraska. I, at least five, ten teams. So it's it is wild to think that the pool of talent has increased that much, but it's there's a lot there's this that's a very layered conversation because I think like one of the reasons you've seen an increase number of AAU teams is listen the money in youth sports like let's not kid ourselves a lot of these AAU programs are you know they're 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 raking it in so money in youth sports AAU basketball on just a broad scale has grown a ton. Also, specialization into one sport has grown a ton. 
where you get more more people now play just basketball that maybe would have been two or three sport athletes 20 years ago. Those kinds of things lead to an increased number of AAU teams. There's more tournaments. There's more, like, all that. There's different, you know, there's the EYBL scene. There's the, there's the UA scene. There's, the, you know, like, there's a lot of different, a lot of different AAU programs, circuits, scenes, all that. But it is kind of amazing to think just on a simple surface level. 20 years ago, Nebraska had one AAU team. There's one. There's one. So on that regard, you'd think like, yes. I mean, this it's you you it, it almost seems undeniable that that high school basketball has has improved dramatically over the course of the last 20 years. For a lot of the reasons we say, like whether it's, you know, what Matt Cumro has done with the Supreme Organization, which has been impressive in Lincoln, I mean, really impressive. What OSA and its rise in Omaha, like there there has been there have been some some programs that have really invested in into the youth and you've seen enormous dividends being paid with all the different pretty damn good basketball players. So, I mean, I think at this point it's hard to argue that it, it hasn't dramatically improved. And even when you think about it, I, I, was, I was thinking about this with regards to the question. Think about this. There is a chance that the best player on Creighton, Nebraska, and Wisconsin are all from the state of Nebraska. Shireman, Greasel, Chucky Hepburn. That's pretty amazing. Especially considering that that list doesn't include the lone McDonald's All-American and Hunter Salas at Gonzaga. Who, by the way, I hope has a breakout year. Like, he had kind of a quiet freshman year, only about, he averaged four points per game, 13 minutes a game. So I hope he, I, I hope he has a big year. Because I remember, it's funny, I remember telling Matt Hill this when he was on his visit uh, to Creighton. He was, he was, Couple years younger than me, he was. He went to Southeast just like me, and he was going through. He was very highly ranked, uh, recruited kid, really good player, and he was considering Nebraska. He was considering Creighton. He was considering Texas. And I remember when he was on his visit to Creighton, I remember telling him this. I told him, I said, "Hey, bro, trust me. I know this is. I was just at Kansas, like at a school like Texas. If you go in there, if you don't establish yourself early. If you don't establish yourself right away, they are going to recruit over you and you can become an afterthought relatively quickly. And at Gonzaga, it's the same thing now because Gonzaga recruits at a national premier high profile level. Programs like Texas and Kansas and Gonzaga, like they are reloading with a new crop of stars each year. And if you don't carve out your role your minutes, it can be really challenging. So I'm rooting for Hunter Salas. And I think I, my guess is he's poised to have a really good second season at Gonzaga. But back to the point, it is pretty amazing to think that the best players on Nebraska, Creighton, and Wisconsin might all be from the state of Nebraska. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. As a basketball lover, I love to see the the – the rise of Nebraska born and bred players going out and killing it at the college level. Absolutely. A Huda Media Production.